I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian schoolteacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. This is a CBC Podcast. I think I've really discovered a level of fearlessness that I even I didn't know I had. Um, but I've also never really talked about anything that people had real opinions on. Like, it's mostly I'm just like, these magazines are so mean to us. And like a lot of stuff <laughs> I say on stage is very mundane. I've never talked about things that people have opinions on. Keep that in mind as you listen to this. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. That's the voice of Alison Levy. The thing about comedy, especially in like 2023, is it can kind of come from anywhere. It's not just like jokes about golf anymore or like whether or not you get any respect. In Alison Levy's case, some of the most transformational and important comedy she's ever done, some of the most popular comedy she's ever done came from an unwanted pregnancy. Alison's touring a show that's getting a lot of attention right now. It's called Oh God, a show about abortion. If you don't know Allison, and I didn't before I heard about this show, she's a, a really accomplished comedian. She's written for shows like Broad City and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, she's been published in The New York Times and McSweeney's and Vice and Cosmo. So she's had a pretty incredible career. And she got a lot of attention for making this show um, about her abortion. She also performed it on the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned in the United States. And she's going to talk a little bit about that. And she's also going to talk about making comedy about things that people have very strong opinions about. It was a great joy to talk to Alison Levy. She's bringing her show to Just for Laughs in Toronto tonight. Here's our conversation. How are you? Hi, so nice to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. And, and congrats on, on JFL. And I'm excited to see the show. Uh, oh, I was, thank you. I was doing some research getting ready for this, and I, f- I found this really interesting, that you started out in comedy kind of um, st- studying it in like an academic setting. Am I right about that? I, um, yeah, so I had been I had been doing a lot of writing and figuring out just like what is going to be satisfying for me creatively, even if it's not a full time job. And I took a storytelling class. I was a big fan of The Moth and Risk. They they were big shows in New York and and big podcasts I loved. And uh, I had almost died from a surgical complication when I was nineteen, and I was trying to process it creatively. And so I took a storytelling class and was and was talking about it on stage. And I realized I was just starting to be making a lot of jokes. And, and that was what I was leaning on as the, the narrative device I wanted to use to talk about this really dark, really harrowing experience I went through. And then I realized I'm just doing stand-up. Like, that's what I'm doing now. And so then that I, I, I began doing open mics with a little bit of confidence, but it wasn't, you know from nothing. Can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of the genesis of of the show we're going to talk about today about, oh God, a show about abortion? Sure. Um, uh, you know, the show is based on my own personal experience of, of an unwanted pregnancy and having an abortion uh, like four or five years ago. And the stand-up I write is about my life, whether that's a personal experience or just my perspective on on something in the world. It's always been it's not a character. I don't do super topical jokes. I, I just kind of talk about me and my life and my thoughts. And so when I went through this experience, I was like, 
I've got to write about this to talk about it on stage. And it was scary to do that because it's certainly, you know, it is a controversial topic for a lot of people um, just for discussion, let alone for being on stage and, and making jokes. And I found abortion was often used as a punchline. And I was like, well, I think it's more than that. Like there's, there's more to the experience. I, I, I know this now very personally. And so I started writing jokes about it and it was, Slow to start. It was definitely hard. Um, But I I finally started figuring out a lot of jokes where I was like, oh, the experience is so normal. I felt it to be so normal and so so shockingly undramatic. So that's kind of what I dialed into. I'm a big details and minutia person just in general. So I was like, well, what was everybody wearing? What were my thoughts when I showed up there? And was I on my phone? Was I not on my phone? What did it smell like? What's outside of the clinic? And so all of those details like made for really great jokes. And then I kind of stepped back and was like, wait, I've got like 15 minutes of just this story and this experience. I think there might be a bigger show here. So, so um, you, you said something earlier. You were talking about how you know I'm, I'm I when I decided to do this show. To some people, this is going to be a controversial topic. To some people, it's going to be mm-hmm. more in hushed tones. And and mm-hmm. you sort of you know your your perspective was very different on that. How does that? I guess how does that lead to the tone of the show you wanted to do? Like for for those of uh, those those of us who haven't seen yet, talk to me a little bit about the tone you needed to set during the show. I really wanted the tone to be um, reflective of how shockingly easy and simple I felt the experience was and how that's not how we ever talk about abortion. We, whether it's abortion or any other, you know, quote unquote, controversial issue, like we focus on the worst case scenarios. The stories you hear in pop culture are the really traumatic ones, the really difficult to talk about ones where, you know, somebody is very young or the victim of something. And and I think that those are really important abortion stories to be telling. And they are a huge part of why we need to fight for access. But one that's always been missing to me is this very everyday, oh no, I found out I was pregnant. Well, I don't want to be. So I called and I made an appointment and I went. And then the next day I just carried on like nothing happened. And I think that that is a huger piece of the pie when it comes to abortion experiences than most people even realize. And so I wanted the show to capture how every, like how little it felt. And we're taught it's the biggest thing that can happen to us as people who can get pregnant. And it's in fact, doesn't have to be. It used to be in the show. I don't think it is anymore, but I used to say that I got, I had two root canals that same month and those were so much worse <laughs> in every single way, financially, physically, emotionally. I mean, I mean abortion has been legal in the United States for, for, for decades now, but there really hasn't been a show like this before, like a comedy show Uh, centered around around your experience. Why do you think that is? You know, I think I think there were many years when it was legal that people might have felt like, well, now we don't have to talk about it because it's legal, Um, even though it was it was never legal for everyone and it was never accessible for everybody. Um, I think I think it's easy to go to the dramatic. And and I think for comedy, again, I think abortion has often been the punchline and rather than the experience. And I think also, you know, for a lot of the last 50 or 60 years, there haven't been a ton of female voices or or people who can get pregnant who perform and write the comedy that people are, are seeing and, and listening to. So 
I think it was only natural that as more and more women do comedy, that the experiences that women have are going to be more centered. And I think that that's what excites me about this show. And it's what excites me about seeing other, you know, even hearing friends of mine in comedy be like, oh, I've never heard anyone talk about miscarriage on stage. And I've had three. It's my turn to talk about it. Like, why can't I talk about it? I know you were about to stage the show when COVID hit. And then uh, by mm-hmm. the time you were able to get the production running again in 2022, and we we, we hinted at this a little bit a bit earlier, but I, I, another news story did hit the headlines. Just take a listen to this. The sounds of protests on the streets across the United States. On Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the 1973 decision on abortion. Roe v. Wade gave women the right to decide if they wanted to go through with a pregnancy. Now each state is left to choose if and when abortions are available. That's the Canadian news, the CBC News clip uh, from when Roe v. Wade was overturned. And um, Alison, you were performing a show that night. Can you tell me about it? It was shockingly joyful. And I I feel weird even using that word, but I will say like the thing about the show that's been so beautiful to me, um, besides people just like wanting to come see it at all is, is how many people kind of walk away from it inspired to talk about their own abortion experiences and to share that with the people in their life, either publicly or privately. But but to not feel like you're not allowed to talk about this thing that we really haven't been allowed to talk about ever. And I think the audience that night really came looking for, I think, a moment of community. And that's to me when the show is always its best is when people are there because they want to be together in a group. And, and, and that to me is always just the most exciting you know, way to do it. Um, but it was intense and it was super emotional. And there were there were several moments during the show that I don't normally get emotional. And I did. Really? Um, and there, yeah. And there is a section at the end where I, I very briefly but very intensely address the incredible privilege that I have as a straight, white, cis woman in a liberal state with financial abilities to do things that like get health care. Um, and, I, I, and I zero in on all the different people who don't have the privilege and don't have the access and ease that I do when act, when trying to get medical care, specifically when trying to get an abortion. And that moment, you know, it's all, it's, as I've said, it's always been hard for huge swaths of people in America, but it is so much harder now. And there are so many more people that are part of that population. There are states that you never thought it would be hard to get an abortion where it is. Um, and I, that moment really, I, I remember on that night, I was tearing up a lot. Um, the audience was extremely emotional because that's really, my story is not the tragedy. It is not the trauma. And it is, it happened in the past. It happened when abortion was illegal, was legal. Abortion is still legal in New York. You know, th- I'm not what is upsetting about it. It's, it's all of the people who can't access abortion. And that's what really always gets me, um, you know, emotional. Like right now, I even feel like kind yeah. of emotional about it. Um, and, and the most angry because that is so um, outrageously unfair. After that, I'm, I'm imagining, and I'm even just from doing the research on this, like the press around you got a lot more intense. There was a lot more writing about the mm-hmm. show after after Roe was overturned. Um, have you learned anything new about your about yourself, either as a performer or otherwise through doing the show? I think I've really discovered a a level of 
fearlessness that I even I didn't know I had. And I've never been a, a particularly scared performer. Um, but I've also never really talked about anything that people had real opinions on. Like, it's mostly I'm just like, these magazines are so mean to us. And like, <laughs> I eat eggs every morning, but I sometimes want yogurt. I mean, like a lot of stuff I say on stage is very mundane. No, I cut nine inches off my hair. I went from like fundamentalist to like human being. <laughs> like my friends were like, is this a breakup haircut? And I'm like, no, I've been alone the whole time. <laughs> Trying to get to a breakup. That's the goal. And this is really the first time I've taken something that that people can have opinions on. And to get up and do it and to not be afraid. I mean, I think about the early jokes I wrote about abortion after I had one and how unconfident I was doing them on stage. And of course they bombed because I did not stand behind them. I was kind of scared to be sharing this really revealing part of my life to, to complete strangers. And now I feel like really powerful getting to get on stage and talk about these things that I think people want to hear, but are also afraid to say themselves. When I was doing um, research for this and, and looking at some of the, the quotes about the show, um, I caught one from your, your good friend and your, and your collaborator and someone you've worked with, Alana Glazer from, from Broad City, oh, yes. who, who called your comedy um, radically female. What, what did you make mm. of that? I found that to be such a unbelievable compliment and something she has said to me, um, both you know in person and uh, in the interview that that's from. And so much of my comedy has always been, I, I am a woman and I experience the world through that perspective. I'm never not a woman. Um, and so it's always been kind of how I talk about things on stage. And I've always wanted to want to talk about things that affect me as a woman. And I don't really care that men don't read fashion magazines. And I don't really care that men don't understand uh, how stupid ads for birth control feel when you're somebody that they're actually for. And and I, I, that's so much of the show is like, it's not that I'm talking about deeply physical things about being a woman. I'm just sharing like, this is what it is, which again has been like a, a very freeing experience as a performer and a writer. <laughs> Uh, before we before we let you go, um, and you mentioned your, your work as a writer, um, for, for, for people who don't know, in addition to your own um, uh, work on stage, you've written for shows like Broad City and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, and I know you can't talk about that work uh, with me because of the ongoing writer strike in the United States. But I, I would wonder if you could just talk about that at all. Just wonder if you could take a moment here and talk about experiencing this as a writer or what's at stake for you and your fellow writers right now, how things are feeling. Yeah, I mean, it has been a real emotional roller coaster. And, um, you know, there are days where I'm like, this will end soon. And there are days like we're going to be on strike forever. And it's been really hard. Um, I, you know, TV writing is where I make most of my money. And therefore, when there isn't any, I have a lot less money. And that's a real problem for me. <laughs> but I, I really think that it has been, I hope that it's been a big awakening for a lot of people. And it certainly has been even for me, someone who's been pretty cued into labor rights in general. Um, but how important it is that we start really making I would say companies, but specifically overpaid CEOs be accountable and have to like, yeah, these guys who have billions and billions of dollars, like I hope that they feel uncomfortable about what we're asking for and that we're making it so public about how little we make. I don't see the value in a CEO, but I see the value in a key grip who works on a show that I love. And, and while this fight has been so much about writers and so much about actors, I hope 
that we can win the kind of rights that we that we want, which is which is only to be paid fairly enough to live in New York and Los Angeles, the two most expensive cities in America, basically. We just want living wages and a real future where you feel like you're not letting the work suffer because you're so financially strained, which I think a lot of people have have really felt and done. And it's really hard to focus on making a really great show or movie when you have to spend 50% of your time looking for your next job because you didn't make enough money to qualify for health insurance on the six week one they got you got. And, you know, getting up and talking about abortion and access and and things like that, it, it's so connected. And, and really, at the end of the day, everybody deserves the right to live the life that they want to live. And whether that is um, not being pregnant and not having a child, even though you were pregnant, or whether that is having enough money to raise a family on the salary that you collect as an employment, uh, an employee of an entertainment company. Like both of those things are incredibly important. I think they're even connected really. Allison, I really appreciate your perspective. I'm really looking forward to seeing the show uh, when it comes to Canada. And thanks so much for making the time. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Allison Levy is bringing her one-woman show, Oh God, a show about abortion, to Just for Laughs tonight in Toronto and tomorrow. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn... It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian schoolteacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. Love a boom clap. Back in 2010, the next guest you're about to hear broke out of their home province of Quebec in one of the biggest possible ways. Even though they were relatively unknown in English-speaking Canada, Carqua in 2010 won the Polaris Music Prize, and all of a sudden they were everywhere. Until they weren't. Shortly after they won one of the most prestigious prizes a musician can win in this country, they took um, an extended hiatus. Members of the band released solo records. They worked with other musicians. For a while, it seemed like they had won this big award, and that was kind of it for them. But now, 13 years later, Carqua are back. They have a brand new album called Dans le Secant and a new tour. So yeah, where have Carqua been? I caught up with founding member and keyboardist of Carqua, Francois Lafontaine from Montreal. Where, what, what happened? Where did you go? The past 13 years? Please. Oh, man, I've done so many things, actually. I, uh... I spend a lot of time on the road. I worked with a lot of uh, artists uh, in Montreal, in Quebec. Uh, I worked with Patrick Watson. I worked with Marie-Pierre Arthur, which is my wife. And I was uh, I was producing uh, producing albums and uh, scoring music for films. I, I, I've done so many things. 
and I it was it was a it was a fast uh, it it was a weird thing to get out of the band and doing so many different stuff at the same time. So it was a but uh, I learned a lot. I learned that uh, you have to uh, take a break sometime for the family also. <laughs> but, but I think the question we were all wondering on, on this side of the microphone was why? Like, what, why did you take a break? I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, but for all the members of the band also, um, I think everyone, we, we needed uh, to take uh, our breath a little bit because we were so much touring at that moment. And uh, for almost like uh, six years of touring, uh, I was never at home, actually. And so... That's that was the only way of living to to earn uh, earning yeah, yeah earning that's uh, right yeah. so um, and uh, to project myself or to project us two years in the future to see oh you're gonna be at that place at that moment at that right time so it was it was so uh, we were really anxious about that I think so we needed to take a break a breath or a breath and uh see what we could do by our own so we wanted to do other stuff even if we we won the polaris prize and all that all that thing came out you know uh after because it was already decided that we gonna take a break what happened that you're back like if, if, if a band takes a year off or two years off i understand that because that's an album cycle um, if a band takes five or six years off, it's oh okay. Well, you know that's that's I mean, they needed a little bit of a break. But when you take this long off, I I wasn't expecting new music from you at all. What what happened? Neither. that you, no, you, you neither really. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, we were kind of stuck in our solo projects and uh, different projects that we uh, already started after the the, the band. Uh, took a pose you know so it was pretty hard after that to uh find another moment a right place to uh, get back in the studio and uh, do some other music you know but why why, and, why did you decide to do it why did you decide to get back together and make new music as karkwa we we um we had a call in 2018 from a friend who was starting a festival in shikutsumi I think it was this, the first or the second year of the festival. And he asked Carqua if we wanted to play there. And uh, everybody said yes. And uh, it was incredible. The, the, the reception of the people, the, like, the love that we, they gave us was overwhelming for us. And after that gig, we said, yeah, man, it, it, we, should, we should do something one day. Then I started to play a little bit with Julien Sago uh, on his album in the studio, and I went on tour a little bit with him, which is the the, the percussionist of the Carquois. And then I, I went on tour and in the studio with Louis Jean doing uh, two of his uh, last album. And uh, like the seeds were planted, like that something can can happen after that, you know? So when I was the last tour that I've done with, was with Louis Jean. So uh, and uh, we were to, already talking uh, during the, the the tour that after 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 the Louis Jean tour, we should get back in the studio and ask the other guys if if they wanted to do that. 
and uh, the opportunity was there actually everybody has stopped their their tour with other projects and we had one year in front of us to do an album so uh that's what happened actually and it was fun it was it was fun <laughs> so you're going to set up a song from the record today what what, what song are we going to hear uh tell me a little bit about it it's about a lot of stuff i think it's the that's what happened with Kakwa. It's like there's you can make your own interpretation of this, the lyrics if you want, but uh, I think it's 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 about it's about that. Like people look at your phones. Phone like, oh, I'm parfait. I'm 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 really perfect in that screen. But if you take this thing and you throw it back, you get the life going on and no no it's not perfect actually it's like you can see stuff on on uh, platforms and uh, facebook instagram like everything seems so perfect in everybody's life but it's not so that's one of the thing that i i see it like that but 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 maybe julien wrote it down uh, wrote the lyrics and uh he probably has a different interpretation than mine. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to trust yours. Uh, thanks so much for being here, man. If, if you don't mind, at the end of these things, what we like to do is uh, get you or get the person to introduce the song. How would you, could, would you mind doing it in French to say, hey, you know, my name is, and here's, here's the name of the song? Salut, je suis François Lafontaine, claviériste de Carquois, et voici notre toute nouvelle chanson parfaite à l'écran. Voilà, bonne écoute. Ces mâchoires qui moi qui claquent, qui la blessent Un long passage entre deux vagues qui cherchent à mort Elle pense glisse avec exploit de justesse Premier abord trouve un endroit sans orchestre Elle se redresse Brand new music from Carqua. I didn't think we'd ever have brand new music from Carqua, to be honest. That's a new song called Parfait à la Crème from Carqua here on Q. All right, that's it for the show today. The other conversation we put up today is with um, an artist that I- I've loved for a really long time. Alyssa P. I remember when she was Alyssa P. Isaac. Um, she came on the show to talk about this really amazing... She told me about this thing a couple of years ago over Instagram, I remember, and I was so looking forward to hearing it. Um, she took these classic pop and rock songs from her childhood, songs by like Metallica, um, Cyndi Lauper, Fleetwood Mac, and translated them into her language, translated them into um, Inuktitut. And not only does it change how the songs sound, obviously, but in many ways for her and for her community, it changes the meaning of the songs to them. So I can't wait for you to hear that conversation. Go check that out wherever you can. We'll see you soon. Later on.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.